Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. Thank you so much for joining me today on Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius. It is very early in the morning, but it's all good. I'm happy. I'm going to get a lot of work done. I need to record the podcast, put up the newsletter, get my kids to school, go do some yoga, lift a little bit of weights, maybe come home, jump in the pool. I don't know. I did that the other day. I needed it. Yeah, much better place than last week. Also, I should say this week was a fucking struggle. So it's been, yeah, I don't know, maybe since December, it's been pretty rough. But it reminds me that of a lot of different things. I think last week I touched on, okay, I definitely have to exercise. I have to do my breathing. I have to do things that will get me out of the current state, whatever state I'm in. Like if it's a negative state, because what I do is I say, oh yeah, I'm fine. I'm over it. I'm cool. I'm, yeah. But the other day I was thinking about that. Just, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, leave me alone. I'm fine. I'm fine. It's okay. I'm fine. I was like, all right, what does that stand for? I was looking up some of the different acronyms, but the thing that came to me was forever ignoring negative emotions. Like, so whether it's anger, sadness, whatever it is, I usually just bury that shit and I don't want to deal with it. I think a lot of men do that. A lot of people in general, probably, but especially men, I'm definitely guilty of it. I'm trying not to do that. So when I say I'm fine, it's like, Mm, I'm not so sure about that, but I will be fine because just getting through each day, right? That's the goal, especially when you're struggling, I think is to yeah, kind of get through today and then tomorrow I'll fucking deal with that tomorrow. So if it even comes, because maybe I'll die in my sleep, never know. So, or playing a land on the house or some other exciting shit. All right. The only bad thing about doing a podcast at five in the morning is there's a little playful kitten here that wants to be part of it. This dude gives me a lot of love. Super cool, Leo. But uh, man, he also drives me nuts. You drive me nuts, dude. But having a cat is probably one of the things that brings me a lot of calm. I It'd be so much cool to have a big-ass dog right here growling at you and... That would look cool, but honestly, the purring of the cats, I think it probably definitely helps a lot, and I have them on me whenever I'm sitting down here writing. This week, I decided to do a lot of my writing outside, which was awesome. So, fortunately, it is not very cold. I live in Southern California. It has been very nice, so that's what I've been doing this week. I've just been going out, hanging out in the backyard, Sometimes taking the computer, sometimes just reading and writing, editing like that. The One of the coolest things I did this week was going back into the cold pool. I hadn't been doing that at all. I've been, I don't know what my problem has been with it for the last, last, last winter. I don't think I used the pool either. The pr- years before that, I would go in it pretty often, like every day, every other day, and increase my time. But this winter, last winter, did not want to go in at all. Just like, I don't know what the problem is. Just didn't want to go into the cold. But the other day, I was having a very, very bad day. Didn't want to go into the cold, but forced myself. And then every time I was having negative thoughts, I would just go a little bit deeper into the cold until I was up to my chin. And it felt awesome. I was probably in there 20 or 30 minutes. And uh, yeah, so that helped me that day. I think that's what it is. It's like, okay. Every day, I'm just going to find one thing that helps. A lot of this stuff, I think, is dealing with the guilt of, you know, 
Like, I'm fortunate. I, I, I shouldn't feel this way, right? Like, backyard's beautiful. I shouldn't feel this way. You know, my family's healthy. I shouldn't feel this way. All of these things, like, okay. Yeah, just because things are going all right in different areas doesn't mean that your mental health, your brain health is on point. So, this is all shit that I've already been through a couple times. It's, I'm going back to a therapist next week. I already made my appointment. One of the things I was thinking I was like, instead of me talking to him, trying to catch him up on the last two years, what I could probably do is look at the headlines or look at the descriptions of each podcast over the last two years or whenever I saw him last. Like, oh, yeah, <laughs> every three months I happen to go through a major fucking breakdown, depression, rage filled episode that may last a while. So that happens here. It happened here. Here's how I got out of it. Here's how I got out of it. So I guess it's kind of good that I talk about this shit on here. It's not always fun. It's not something I want to do. But lots of times it's like, no, I don't, I don't want to talk about this shit, but because it affects so much and because I have so many friends, um, that are either in this situation or they're fucking going to be. So, well, and hopefully, hopefully they won't all be all my fighter friends, but I think a lot of them are going to be dealing with this shit. One of my close friends was going through the same stuff I was in the same circumstances. He had a lot of stress. He wasn't working out. He also found himself, man, there was one day where I was like, fuck, I just got to curl up in bed and that's what I'm doing today. It's like, I did get some stuff done, but I need to stay away from everyone. I need to just try to fucking sleep. So yeah, I increased my cannabis usage. That helped a lot. I talked with friends. That helped a lot. And yeah. That is what I'm doing. Also, I had a very cool acupuncture session. Again, something that is going to lower my stress because that's what I'm having a hard time with. So next week, I have therapist, and I'm also getting my brain scanned at Vital Head and Spine. I think I, I think I said that last week, but I'm taking my son in. So Jake and I are both going to go get our brain mapped, which is cool. Then I think it takes maybe a week or two to get the results, and that's when I'll determine what's going to, what we're going to work on this next round. I definitely want to work on emotional regulation because that seems to be the big thing, but it also might be working on my sleep too. That was one of the big problems I had before. And the first thing that they realized when they did the neurofeedback and the brain mapping was that my sleep was garbage. I wasn't getting deep sleep. And I know that's been a big problem over the last two months or since whenever we got this cat where I've been waking up early, but blah, blah, blah. No one wants to hear that. Anyhow, TBI or CTE, that book, I think I may reread it or I'll listen to the audiobook because it's on sale, only $2.99. But the reason I'm going to listen to it is so I can take my own advice about staying on this. Dr. Allison Gordon, that was one of the things she said on when I was having a hard time one of these times was that, you know, health is a journey. It's not you take these pills and you're all better. No, I did a lot of damage to my brain. So, it's not going to be a super easy fix. It's not going to be a one-time fix. It's like, no, this is ongoing. I got to deal with this. I just got to figure out these ways. I got to lower my stressors and improve my resiliency. So that is what I'll be doing with therapy, neurofeedback, breathing, sauna, pool, all that good stuff. All these things that are right here at my disposal. Very fortunate that I can do it. So I owe it to myself and to my family to do those things. All right, now all that negative stuff is out of the way. It's actually not even negative because it's just what it is. And I keep trying to spin it in a positive direction. Keep trying to tell the kids, like, hey, this is what I'm going through. Here's what I got to do. Say, hey, I had a really cool talk with my friend Carl today. 
that helped a lot. You know what I did, guys? I went and did this today. Oh, you know what? Check out this email that I got from Alvin. I was like, look at his good advice. Look at what this or how this made me feel. So I don't know. And then the conversations that I've been having with my wife and just telling her like, hey, this is how my brain's working. When I heard you say that, this is where I went. And all of a sudden, I'm here. So I was like, it's not because I'm angry at you. It's not because of this or that. But my brain fucking went here with it. So this is, here's my thought process. By sharing my thought process, I think that helps a lot because yeah, a normal person's brain probably fucking wouldn't do what mine just did in that split second going from everything's cool to be like, so, and it's probably not that bad, but it, it's, it could be bad. But that said, there are all kinds of positives this week. I mean, shit, the day that I had my major break was when I was saying I was finishing up Death Fest. I just got the very ending from Glenn. He did an awesome job with the ending. So that is done. The main story is done. That's to the editor. Now he just has to go over the death scenes, but those are pretty much done. So that book will be out pretty soon. Got an awesome message from Evan Bachman yesterday. He said that his trying to die in dark fairy tale. That main story is done. That one I've been looking over a little bit as he's given it to me, but I'll do a full take on that. The nice thing is it's going to be a very, very easy edit. I'm not going to have to do a lot of work on that one. Evan's done all the work. He's created the story. So that's bitching. We'll be able to put that one out. I'm not sure when. I'm pretty sure we'll put that out on Vela, the main story, while I'm cleaning up some other books. And then we'll get to the death scenes on the dark fairy tale. So who knows when that real book will be out sometime this year for sure. But yeah, trying to figure out, okay, I got to get this paperback. Got to get Wild West out first. Then I got Death Fest coming out. I want to get that paperback out. So that's probably books. Those are books five and six. And then we have Ghostland, which I'm working on now. Finally, it's awesome. This is the third time, third or fourth time reading through. So I'd already marked up everything I wanted to put into the edits, but I'm rereading one more time. This is after I've read through Ghostland, the entire trilogy, just making sure everything's consistent, which Duncan did an amazing job. But uh, yeah, having a lot of fun. Really cool. So that's why I'm spending my day reading that, going through that, editing it, putting it on the computer. I should add that to Duncan within a week. And then, then I need to go over the death scenes and other pass, fill those out, send those to him. So it can be a little overwhelming, could take a lot of time, but it's super cool that everything is being worked on. Like Kevin Anderson's working on his Try Not to Die in Roswell while all this is being done. All these other people are working on theirs. I just touched base with Caitlin about hers and how close that is to being done. So all this stuff is being done in the background, which is really cool. So having, it's going to be 30 books at minimum of 20 being published unless I die first. But even then I was telling my kids like, yeah, I'd like to show you what this is, how to do it. And you guys can take it over when I am no longer here or able to. And then on top of uh, on top of all that cool stuff, I just got that new Try Not To Die going with Pat. That's Try Not To Die. I'm not sure what the official name, but at the mall set in the 90s, some monsters. So that one will be really cool. I'm also super excited about the one that I'm going to be doing with Alvin Pateras that is going to be set in the Philippines or in that area. That is going to be super awesome. What's cool is all these stories. I couldn't do them on my own. These aren't my ideas for this overall story. I could never write those kinds of stories. But if I could team up with someone and I could help them and be like, oh, yeah, you do this, I'll do this. Let's put it together. And that's one reason why I like this too. I think a lot of authors, especially ones that have co-authored or have ghostwriters, 
They're not having these kinds of conversations. They they don't want to say, like, oh, I didn't do that much on this one. Like, on Wizard's Tower, I did very little. I didn't do a whole lot on that one. I almost didn't want to put my name on it. Now, with Ghostland, because I'm spending so much time on it, like, 100%, this is Duncan's story. He did an amazing job. I'm going to give my edits and be like, hey, here's my suggestions. Take what you want. I don't want to fuck up your story. So, you know, and then I'm, I'm helping with the death scenes a little bit. So that one I feel a little bit better on. Certain ones, I'm doing almost all of the work. So they, they vary. I'm not going to say, oh, yeah, these are all mine. This is my shit. These are all. Like, no, I'm very, very grateful for each of these co-authors for coming in here, helping me however we have arranged to do it. It's like, we're going to do what works for us. So I ask them what they need and tell them I'm available as long as I'm not in the middle of mental breakdown, I guess. But shit happens. And with authors, it probably happens a lot more than you hear about with any kind of artist, right? So a lot of self-reflection going on, a lot of pain, a lot of other kind of shit boiling in that brain. I'm excited to be having another conversation with a literary agent about the series. I strongly believe it will be successful, very successful, if I get an agent that's going to help spread it. Otherwise, things just take forever. I was thrilled to finally have Twisted Reading hit 300 reviews, but also depressed because it's like, fuck, that took seven years. So incredibly grateful for everyone that's left a review on any of my shit. That is, yes. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I don't want to bitch about it and uh, pretend like I'm not grateful for those 300 reviews and ratings because I am, but it's like, fuck, you know? It's like, all I sh had to do was connect with people or I see everyone going into these groups and asking for help sharing and reading and everything else. It's like, man, that is such a hard thing for me to do. It feels like begging. I don't want to be like that. I know that's not what it is and that these groups are devised for that, but yeah. So I have definitely hurt my progress, but I appreciate everyone that is kind of just like, yeah, keep going, keep going, keep going. So slowly, but surely it's taken a while. But the nice thing with that too, with Twisted Reunion, 300 reviews, it's got, I think, a 4.3 rating. The German version, only a 3.7, because you guys are some negative motherfuckers. You know, and all the other ones, they're doing well. So it's just a matter of time. And one of the nice things with the Trans Die series is I don't feel any kind of pressure right now. It's like, oh, I'll take my time because I know I've got some really, really cool books coming out. And the more I put out there, the easier it's going to be. And when I really start putting some marketing money into it, I think this thing is going to skyrocket. That is my hope because I want to make money. Not for myself. You know, that's been one of the problems too. I think I've always had a hard time with money and feeling whether I deserved it or not or whatever else. I've always given shit away, not really wanting to make money. But I want to make money for my co-authors for sure. and. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with making money. I do want it, but this series is designed, so it's going to build me up. Well, anyone that's reading books in this series is going to want to go on to my other stuff, and then I can make money there. But this series, it's like, man, this is something where ideally it'll be something that some of these co-authors can be making a little bit of money all the time, you know, from here on out. So support these people. Buy some Try Not to Dies today. Tell your friends. And remember... The Trench Die in the Wild West and Trying to Die back at Grandma's House. Both of those are on Kindle Bella. I think there are only a couple more episodes of the Wild West out. Once the final one is out, we can put the book out a month later. So 
I know if you're in another country, it kind of sucks because you guys don't have Kindle Bella. And I think Kindle Bella kind of sucks because it's episodic and that's not how I'd want to read the story. But it is an opportunity for me to reach new readers. Why not do that? If it just simply is putting off the release of a book for a month, then I'll go for it, at least for now. So still playing around with that. We shall see what happens. All right, guys, I'm getting out of here. I already talked too long. I need to get this out before my kids wake up and I have to take them to school and I have to write a little newsletter or I get to, I should say get to. I'm very fortunate that I have people that want to read my emails. That's super awesome. So if you are a subscriber, thank you so much. If you subscribe to this podcast, that would be awesome. Tell your friends, tell your family. They won't judge you. Just like, God damn, that guy cusses a lot. He's really negative. Why are you listening to him? And then you can explain, oh, he writes some cool books and he's kind of a nice guy and he's trying really hard or whatever. You don't tell them shit. Say, just listen to it. Just give it a shot. Or don't even bring it up and enjoy your week. All right, guys, enjoy this story. Book of Revelation. This is narrated by T. Quillen off of Twisted Reunion. Thank you so much for listening. And I will talk to you later. Peace. Book of Revelation Professor John Warrington stood in the middle of the driveway, an eight-foot-high gate towering before him. To his right was an intercom console. Its red button had faded considerably since he'd last been to this house more than five years ago. That was a day he would never forget, no matter how hard he tried. Not yet ready to announce himself, not sure if he'd ever be, and thinking that maybe it would be best if he'd just turn around and go home, John tried to peer through the wrought iron gate to glimpse what awaited him. But the once immaculate gate was now an impenetrable wall of ivy and brambles. The only metal showing was the sharp, rusted points that begged for blood, taunting the foolish to climb over them, hoping they'd slip and impale themselves on the menacing spikes. John wondered again what he was doing here why he had agreed to the old man's invitation. They hadn't spoken since that day five years ago when Hazelwood, John's former professor, mentor, and friend, had let John know exactly what he thought of him. Not only had Hazelwood kicked John out of his house and his life, but he'd threatened John with far worse. The old man had been seventy years old then, and appeared physically incapable of carrying out the vengeance he'd threatened but his words still echoed in John's mind. People change, John told himself. They get older. They calm down. They realize they had jumped to conclusions and overreacted. Hazelwood had probably decided to forgive John and didn't want to take his grudge to the grave. At least that's what John tried to believe. The old man's threats replayed in his mind as John glanced over his shoulder to the car he'd left at the bottom of the winding driveway. He should be at home, sitting next to the phone. Even though he had his cell phone with him and the police had promised they would alert him immediately if there were any new developments, it didn't feel right to be away from home while Susan was missing. She'd been gone since January. John had come home one afternoon to find their front door wide open. There was one suitcase missing and some of her clothes, but John had never believed she'd packed it herself. 
There hadn't been a note, and Susan would never have walked out without saying goodbye. She was many things, but she was not someone who just ran. John rarely left his house since she'd vanished. He'd done nothing but pace the halls of their home, barely eating, sleeping less than a few hours at a time. The police, along with his friends and family, had encouraged John to go on living his life as best he could. They said sitting at home wouldn't bring Susan home any faster. And the last two months had proved their case. He knew that everyone believed Susan had left him. She was half John's age, gorgeous, and intelligent. But Susan loved him. Of that much, John was certain. They were going to be married in the fall. Hazelwood's invitation was the first John had considered since Susan disappeared. His old mentor had sounded so excited on the phone that John had agreed immediately, despite his better judgment. Truthfully, John needed the distraction. There was still the nagging feeling that this wasn't a good idea. But John was out of the house now, and if he didn't go through with the visit, he would never find out what Hazelwood had to tell him. Maybe the old man wanted to apologize after all these years. Or maybe he expected one from John. Perhaps Hazelwood needed John's advice on a book. The old man would be reluctant to turn to John for assistance, especially after the so-called betrayal. But Hazelwood was getting on in years and might be desperate enough to ask for John's help. Word on campus was that Hazelwood had been living as a recluse for the past few years, rarely venturing from his property. Rumor was that he'd finally given up his search for the mysterious books he'd once dedicated his entire life to finding. John shivered against a sudden chill. Not only was he nervous about the impending reunion, but in his haste to leave the house, he hadn't thought to grab a jacket. Twilight had turned to dusk, and he found his lightweight polo shirt lacking. John pressed the button on the intercom. Almost instantly, Professor Hazelwood's voice sounded from the metal box. Is that you, Jonathan? John greeted his old mentor, surprised by the pleasantness in Hazelwood's voice. He was unable to detect any of the anger that he'd heard on their last visit. Then come on in, old chap, the professor said as the gate began to hum and slowly creak open. John took a step forward, then stopped suddenly, stunned by the full view of the professor's lawn and gardens, which had once been meticulously manicured. Now everything was overgrown or dead. Images of southern graveyards came to mind but even those places had some order to the flora. This looked as if nature had been given free reign to do whatever it liked. Still teetering on the edge of turning around and leaving, John thought of the Beretta 9mm hidden on the top shelf of his closet at home. He'd considered bringing it after he accepted the invitation to visit the man he'd nearly destroyed. But ultimately he told himself he was being paranoid, and he left it locked in the security box. Now, whether or not the old man had been serious, John couldn't ignore the fact that Hazelwood had threatened his life the last time the two had met. The intercom buzzed, and Hazelwood's voice came across. The tea is getting cold, Jonathan. John scanned the grounds for the camera that was allowing the professor to monitor him. He found it hidden halfway up the pine tree to the left of the intercom. Hazelwood had been watching him the whole time. Not willing to look any more ridiculous than he already did, John started up the driveway, the gate closing slowly behind him. There was still beauty in the garden, 
It just had to be found. A solitary rose blooming amid the thorny brush on the left side of the driveway. A young sapling emerging from the wall of weeds to the right. Good can survive with the bad, and life goes on, John thought. But then he looked to the rotting tomato plants and realized everything comes to an end. The door to the professor's house was just ahead. Now was the time to deal with Hazelwood and see what all this was about. Susan would be fine. The black maple door opened just as John raised his hand to knock. Hazelwood appeared, dressed in a shabby dinner jacket. The yellow crest on the pocket was freeing. So was Hazelwood. Thin wisps of silver hair stuck out in every direction. He was a tiny shell of the man John had studied under nearly two decades ago. His back hunched, making him look like a turtle, especially the way his small head, with its beady eyes, poked forward from the collar of his shirt. Hazelwood pushed his glasses up his nose and smiled. You can put your hand down, Jonathan, unless you mean to strike me. The old man's sly smile and questionable sense of humor worried John. He had betrayed Hazelwood's loyalty when he published The Book of Revelation, Exposing the Truth. He'd gained the man's trust, learned all he could about the sacred and secret tomes, and then wrote a book systematically disproving their existence. In doing so, Hazelwood's life's work was ruined. He'd still had his tenure at the university, but he'd lost all credibility. John hadn't set out to deliberately hurt the old man. He simply saw the fallacy in what Hazelwood espoused. At the time he was researching and writing it, John had told himself that Hazelwood would be dead before his book hit the market. But he'd obviously been mistaken, and the book's publication had crushed Hazelwood. Now the old man was smiling up at John as if nothing bad had happened between them. John lowered his hand and scratched at the scraggly, unkempt beard he'd been meaning to shave for several weeks. Good to see you, Professor. You look well. Thank you, Jonathan. I would say the same, but then you'd know I was lying. Before John could respond, Hazelwood continued. But that is to be expected. I read about Susan's disappearance. Are there any new developments? John could only shake his head. That's a shame. I did enjoy her company. Hazelwood moved out of the doorway and waved John inside. I don't want to waste any more of your time than I need to. I heard you're writing another book, and I wouldn't want to impede your progress. John winced at the dig, then entered the house, and waited while Hazelwood closed the door behind them. John admitted, I haven't written a single word since she disappeared. I'm sorry to hear that. Hazelwood shuffled down the hallway and motioned for John to follow. He led him into the bookcase-lined study where they used to meet every week to pore over manuscripts and letters from antiquity. Hazelwood pointed John to the seat at the head of a long oak table. John walked behind the chair and studied Hazelwood's emotionless face. Right, what's this about, if you don't mind my asking? Actually, I do. It's a surprise. Now have a seat while I fetch the tea. John wanted to protest. The idea of a surprise made him feel ill. But there was no sense in pushing Hazelwood. 
the old man would talk when he was ready. He'd learned that lesson a thousand times over the years. Might as well take a seat and relax. A few minutes later, Hazelwood re-entered the study pushing a small bronze cart. After pouring the tea and maneuvering the cart into a corner of the room, Hazelwood said, I let go of the help in case you were wondering. Instead of saying that he had gathered that much from the garden, John simply nodded and took a sip of the Dahang Bao tea, a treat which he hadn't had in five years. It tasted just as delicious and exotic as he remembered. Hazelwood shuffled to the other side of the table and took a seat opposite John. Looking over the top of his steaming mug, he studied John's face. John waited for as long as he could. What is it, Arthur? he asked impatiently, foregoing his usual formalities. I, I don't have time. Hazelwood held up his hand to quiet John, finished sipping his tea, then set down the mug. You'll want to see this. I don't see anything, John said, irritated as he looked about the room. John knew he was being rude, but all he wanted to do was leave. Just seeing his mentor's face brought back the feelings of guilt. Maybe you can't see what you don't believe. John pushed away from the table. I'm sorry, maybe I shouldn't have come. John, sit, Hazelwood said with the same force he used on his more unruly students. You don't want to help me? I I'm sorry, tell me what you want. I want the expert of rare books to verify my greatest find, the one you and I have been discussing since the day we first met. John perked up, recalling his first visit to Hazelwood's office. John had been a sophomore and was desperately trying to get into Hazelwood's class Lost Books of the Ancient World. He tried to remember the list Hazelwood had compiled and hung on his office wall. Which one? You haven't found the unedited Taming of the Shrew. Shakespeare had always been Hazelwood's favorite, even though he'd spent the better part of a decade trying to disprove the bard's authorship on classics such as Macbeth. Hazelwood shook his head and got up from the table to take down the painting that hung between the two largest bookcases. A safe. He dialed in the combination. Even better. John couldn't begin to think what could be better. Shakespeare's comedies, histories, and tragedies had sold for over six million dollars, a dozen times more than John's most lucrative find. If it was much better than that, it explained Hazelwood's friendly disposition and forgiving attitude. Don't tell me it's a da Vinci. John guessed as Hazelwood opened the safe's door. You won't guess. Hazelwood slipped on a pair of latex gloves he kept in the safe. John leaned forward in his chair but couldn't identify the cover of the thick book Hazelwood extricated from the safe. Its glossy black binding with red letters looked to be something from the latter half of the 20th century. Whatever it was, it couldn't be more than 60 years old, and as far as he knew, nothing of much value had been produced that recently. When he looked at Hazelwood's crooked smile, he wondered if perhaps the old man had lost it. Holding the book so John couldn't see the title, Hazelwood handed him a pair of gloves. Once he had them on, Hazelwood set the book 
on the placemat before John. Stephen King's The Stand Complete and uncut. Not even a first edition. And probably only worth the $27 any store would charge for it. If this is a joke, I don't much appreciate it, John said. You said this was something I had to see. How many times have you been told not to judge a book by its cover? Surely you of all people should know that. John breathed through his nose, reached into his shirt pocket and pulled out his reading glasses. As he slipped them on, he examined the cover, searched for anomalies and imperfections that could raise the value, but he couldn't detect a single one. What exactly am I looking for, Arthur? Hazelwood returned to his seat and took another sip of tea. Open it. Tell me what you see. Exaggerating in order to humor Hazelwood, John lifted the cover with the utmost care. The smell of rotten meat wafted from the title page and immediately brought tears to his eyes. John turned his head to the side and slammed the book shut. What the hell was that? John wiped the spit from his mouth, realized he could no longer smell the foul stench. All he smelled was the tea. Hazelwood offered his infuriating smile. You tell me, he said, ever the teacher. It smelled like death inside a toilet. That's aptly put, Hazelwood said, almost to himself. So what is it? Instead of answering John, Hazelwood instructed him to open the book again. John steadied his stomach and prepared for the gut-wrenching smell as he opened the cover. But this time there was nothing except the aroma of aged paper. But it... John trailed off helplessly, looking up at Hazelwood for an explanation. Read the details inside the cover. See anything interesting? John wasn't familiar with many of King's works, but he had read this book after the miniseries had come out. Everything, as far as he could tell, seemed to be in order as he scanned the page. Then he came to the copyright date. 19666. His first thought was that someone had accidentally hit the six key one too many times. But then he considered the newer-looking cover. How old is King? Sixty or so. He wrote this as a teenager? Not quite. The official copyright was 1978. Interesting, John said, not all that impressed by one mistype. How many of these were printed with this date? You're looking at it. Just the one? Hazelwood motioned to the book. Keep going. Annoyed, but more than intrigued, John turned the page and read the dedication aloud. To all my true believers, may your fate be revealed. John looked to Hazelwood and asked, Do you have another copy of this book? As if reading John's mind, Hazelwood recited, For Tabby, this dark chest of wonders. That's the original dedication. The one I'm sure you'd read as a younger man. 
John didn't want to jump to an irrational and impossible conclusion. He'd needed more proof before he could even acknowledge the question the dedication sparked. He'd heard this dedication countless times, but it had been years since Hazelwood discussed it. To all my true believers, may your fate be revealed. Anything else? John asked, knowing he needed more than a dedication to even begin to entertain what Hazelwood was suggesting. Hazelwood nodded. If you need more convincing, that is no problem. Be assured, you have the book in front of you. With one hand ready to turn the page, John said, Professor, you and I both know it doesn't exist. This might meet some of the so-called criteria, but this is not... All I ask is that you hold your judgment until you finish the examination. This is what you want me to believe, isn't it? That this is the book of Revelation? John wasn't referring to the one from the Bible, but the original written a century before the New Testament. Legend said it had been burned over a million times, but it couldn't be destroyed. Instead, it found its way into other books, hiding in the pages of lesser works. That's not what I want you to believe, Hazelwood said. It's what I want you to acknowledge. It's what I want you to verify. I can't verify a myth. Yes, you can. And you will. You will verify that this is real, that this is here, and that both you and your book were mistaken. John started to close the cover, but Hazelwood told him to stop. What are you afraid of, John? If it's just a hoax, as you claim, then the Book of Revelation doesn't exist. But there's no harm in checking, is there? It seems to me that you would want to do that. Look at it as me giving you another chance to disprove me. To embarrass me once again. I didn't write my book to embarrass you. But you did. Now verify my finding, or disprove it. Hazelwood insisted, staring at John. This wasn't a simple request, and both men knew it. Still, Hazelwood wasn't about to let John walk out the door. You owe me that. An unexplainable panic surged through John's body, urging him to run. It had been a mistake to come here, but he was here. The professor deserved his time. Even though John's book had been accurate, he still should have told his mentor what he was publishing. Hazelwood had discovered his pupil's writing the same way as everyone else, in the newspaper. John acquiesced, figuring he could do a quick examination of the book and be done with the whole mess. John looked at the book, then back at Hazelwood. After I prove this is not the book you've been spending your whole life in search of, you'll let me go? and I'll owe you nothing? Let you go? Hazelwood laughed. You're, you're not being held. I'm simply requesting a small favor from an old friend, the preeminent authority on fakes, forgeries, and fables. John's guilt reached nauseating proportions. Fine, let's do this. He turned past the author's note and browsed over the preface. 
What else is there? Another typo? An inscription? Turn to a page in chapter one. John did as he was told. So what am I looking for? What page are you on? There was a number one in the middle of the footer at the bottom of the left-hand page, but a five on the page beside it. John began speed-reading the page, searching for any kind of abnormality. Everything appeared just as he'd read it in his dog-eared copy, when suddenly, across the page, five non-consecutive words transformed from black to bright red. The words then made their way toward the header. John mumbled his disbelief. Yes? Hazelwood said giddily. What is this? John asked. But before Hazelwood answered, John looked at the old man and said, Okay, nice trick. Okay, well done. How did you manage that? I didn't do anything. The ink turns color when the air hits it, or is it the temperature change? Hazelwood smiled. It's no trick. What does it say? Reluctantly, John read the highlighted words to himself. Respect. Don't. Him. You. Always quick with puzzles, he rearranged the order of the words. You don't respect him. Instead of telling Hazelwood this, though, he shook his head and said, I'm surprised you'd sink that low. There's no deception. I have no idea what it reads. Then I'm even sadder, because either you've been duped this easily or you think I'm an idiot. Hazelwood didn't seem to bother by John's disbelief. Try another page. Which one? Your choice. Figuring Hazelwood would direct him to specific doctored pages, John was surprised to be given a choice, but only slightly. Don't tell me you fixed every page. This had to cost some money. Not to mention the amount of time it would take to do what you're suggesting I did. Hazelwood made a good point. But it only made the situation more pathetic. Any page, right? Anyone who choose, be my guest. John flipped through a few dozen pages before stopping. Hazelwood asked him what number he'd landed on. John said, It should read 47, but there's only a 2. A mistake, but not a very revealing one. It's no mistake. You don't see anything else? John adjusted his eyes. Seemingly random words slowly turned from black to red, then moved to the top of the page. Back. Is. Coming. She. Not. It didn't take John long to rearrange them. She is not coming back. John fought to keep from grabbing the heartless bastard by the throat. Gritting his teeth and staring at the man, he said, This is no longer funny. I agree. It isn't. Recognize what you have in front of you. Or are you truly blind? John's hands couldn't stop shaking. Even after what had happened because of his book, John was unable to believe the man would cross the line and bring Susan into the hoax. If you recall, you stopped at that page. I didn't direct you to it. Please, please tell me what it reads. 
His voice seemed to be truly interested, not a trace of malice. Hazelwood had never been a good bluff, so John started to wonder if maybe he wasn't trying to pull off some sinister prank. It says she's not coming back. Do you think it means Susan? Or might there be someone else? There's only Susan. John remembered that they were talking about their honeymoon plans the morning before she'd vanished. He'd finally given in and told her that they could go to Fiji like she wanted. But it doesn't matter what appears, because either you or one of your friends put this here. You suppose it's luck that you turned to that exact page? John motioned toward the book. It's probably on every page. Oh, I assure you, it isn't. So you admit you know what's on the pages? What I admit is the Book of Revelation is able to draw the Chosen to it. It must be calling to you. Do you feel its pull at the back of your mind? John wanted to tell the old kook he was out of his head, that he should be locked up in an asylum. But there was a tug, one that made him want to turn the page. He shook his head to clear his thoughts, upset that he had been so gullible as to consider Hazelwood's suggestion. There was no pull, it was just a book. Why don't you try another? Hazelwood asked. Afraid of what you might find? This doesn't prove a thing. You are worse than one of those TV psychics. These revelations could apply to anyone. Turn to another page. I won't take much more of your time. John flipped through the book and stopped a few pages into chapter 42. Even though he was more than a third of the way through the thick book, the page number in the footer was only three, and the one next to it was 389. If the next page he turns to was four, then he at least had to consider the possibility of the book's legitimacy. He could not think of any way Hazelwood might have rigged the pagination. What page are you on? Hazelwood asked. Your guess is as good as mine. What does the number say? Come on, how'd you do it? Do you remember what I taught you? John flashed through the years of information he'd gathered through their chats, many taking place right here in this room. He tried to remember anything concerning the book and pages. Something clicked. There were some who said the book would only give four revelations a day, each numbered accordingly. He pushed this realization from his thoughts and examined the red words on the page. This one was too simple. Scared, is, use, to, he, pistol, the. John had completely forgotten about the nickel-plated derringer that Hazelwood had kept on his desk. It was a hundred years old and always under glass, but Hazelwood had claimed it still worked. Anything interesting, John? John shook his head and continued to stare at the book, trying to collect himself. As he stared at the blood-red words, an internal alarm sounded, his logic and rationality struggling to hold precedence but it was a losing battle. The book kept calling him, warning him to beware, to stop the crazy old man before it was too late. 
John, I need to know. It looks as if you found something of interest. John picked up his mug and drank as he observed the professor. He hadn't noticed it before, but there was a small bulge under Hazelwood's jacket on the left side of his chest. It was probably just a notepad or a handkerchief, but John supposed it was large enough to be the Derringer. In an attempt to distract the old man, John asked Hazelwood if he would mind getting him some more tea. The man answered that he would be glad to. Hazelwood got up from the table with his eerie smile and turned his back to retrieve the teapot. John looked around for the weapon. On the remote chance that Hazelwood was carrying a concealed gun, John needed something. Hazelwood was old and slow. He couldn't forget that the feeble man coming back with the tea had threatened to kill him the last time they met. Hazelwood seemed very definite on that subject. As Hazelwood poured John's tea, making a point not to look at the book, John leaned forward, trying to peek inside his mentor's frayed jacket. He couldn't tell what was inside. Then Hazelwood returned the pot to its cart. The old man's wife had died shortly after the release of John's book. It wouldn't be surprising if the professor had blamed John for her death as well. A devastating loss could change a man and make him do things he wouldn't have considered before. Now that Susan was gone, John knew this to be very true. Before today, he rarely entertained violent thoughts. But inside this study, he was dreaming of strangling the demented son of a bitch sitting across from him. You're not going to drink it? Uh, I, I was just letting it cool. John picked up his mug and brought it to his lips, wondering if the tea could be poisoned. Could that be what was causing the violent thoughts, making him consider the book to be real? Actually, I, I think it needs another moment. He set the mug in front of him. Hazelwood shrugged and drank from his own cup, the same tea that was in John's mug. Or was it? What do you say to opening up one last page? I promise it'll be the last one. But it only gives four a day, right? Are you sure we should rush to the end? John's eyes drifted to the cart and the small butter knife. He wondered if he could reach it before the old man drew. Four per person, yes, Hazelwood said. So maybe we should do yours next. Not necessary. I just need you to verify that it is the book. I take it that you're still not convinced. That it is the book of Revelation? You told me yourself that it only gives revelations to one who has killed another. I've never harmed a soul in my life. Physically, maybe, Hazelwood said, the overwhelming sadness in his voice hanging over the room. Feeling he had the man on the ropes, John said, At least tell me how you did it. Turn to a new page, and I promise to explain everything. John agreed and flipped further into the book. He stopped and stared at the four in the footer that should have read 932. Hazelwood stood and said, If the book is not real, then how to explain this? What? John asked, distracted as he studied the letters changing color in front of him. Going, he's, kill, to, you. Will you agree that the book is real if the revelations prove to be true? 
John looked up from the book in time to see Hazelwood reach for the object inside of his jacket. Before the old man could pull out a gun, John shoved the table into Hazelwood's chest. John, now on his feet, came charging and grabbed the old man. Hazelwood caught his breath, motioned the hand underneath his jacket. What do you think I have in here? Don't move. Well, this isn't going to be very fun. I have something to show you. Don't move, John repeated. You're acting like I'm going to kill someone. Are you? I'm not going to kill anyone. Hazelwood grinned. Not anyone else, he said. Anyone else? What are you talking about? Don't worry, John. I won't hurt you. Shut up and slowly bring your hand out from the jacket. I had to do it, Jonathan, Hazelwood said, without making a move to withdraw his hand. Shut up, John screamed, pulling Hazelwood's hand away before reaching in himself. I wasn't an evil man, I, I swear it. They say you have to be evil to get it to work. They say the book calls you if you look long enough. Hazelwood tried to reach in his jacket. Stop, John shouted. Leave your hand where it is. But it's the proof you need in order to believe. Go ahead. Take it. John felt something in his hand. Not a gun, but an envelope. It was black. Hazelwood let out a raspy sigh and licked his lips. You'll want to see this. John simply stared at the professor. Then his eyes moved to the envelope. The old man's fingers pushed it on John. Open it. I offer your proof. John tore it open. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for coming tonight. For heeding the call. John hesitated, wondered what could be inside the black envelope. Slowly, he tipped it to the side and caught the necklace sliding out. He didn't need to see the engraving on the locket to know whose neck it had adorned. Another small object dropped to the floor and bounced off his shoe. Susan's two-carat engagement ring. John turned on the professor, ready to grab him by the neck and squeeze. In the envelope, Jonathan, look, Hazelwood whispered. He let the necklace fall from his hand and peered inside. There was a folded Polaroid. It had caused the lump under Hazelwood's jacket. Hazelwood struggled to keep his eyes open. Go on, Jonathan. Go ahead and look inside. John pulled out the photo, the envelope fluttering to the ground. I do thank you, Jonathan. Taking her enabled me to find this book and soon you'll take its burden from me. Hazelwood took a ragged breath. Tell me, Jonathan, when did you know where she was? Was it before or after you walked into my house? That smell. Susan's perfume. He'd been paying too much attention to Hazelwood to realize that it was his fiancée's. The blood-red words. Hazelwood had caused her death. John turned the photo over in his fingers, 
unable to open it and look at the image inside. I did what I had to do, Jonathan. Isn't that what you once taught me? John unfolded the photo. Susan lay on her back, her eyes open. There was a hole a few inches above her right eye. Blood pooled beneath her beautiful blonde hair splayed on the hardwood floor. The same floor he was standing on. Shaking, his mind numb, John reached out and wrapped his finger around his mentor's throat and squeezed. Felt his thumbs denting the larynx, the fleshy tissue stretching under the pressure as Hazelwood's breaths turned wet. John's eyes stayed locked on the old man's face as Hazelwood's fingers clawed at his wrists. He lowered the old man to the floor and continued to squeeze until he felt his fingers tingle. The life finally left his old friend's eyes, and John turned to the book, which had fallen to the floor. Page 166 was now numbered 1. The words changed color before his eyes. Her. Goodbye. Tell. Run. The words made chillingly perfect sense. This truly was the book of Revelation. John walked out of the room and saw his love's body curled up under a table. He fell to his knees and kissed her cold hand. He said his goodbyes and stifled his sobs. He sat there for hours until his legs fell asleep. Then he lay down next to her and recalled the final word. Run.